electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Live from the Nasdaq Market Center overlooking New York City's Times Square, this is Fast Money. I'm Melissa Lee. Tonight's trader lineup, Guy Adami, Tim Seymour, Dan Nathan, and Brian Kelly. Tonight on Fast, the biggest bull on Wall Street says let the good times roll. Wells Fargo's Chris Harvey sees another 8% upside for stocks by year end. He'll tell us how we, got, we get there and when he sees a record rally running out of steam. Plus, cyber stocks surging. Names like Palo Alto, Sentinel One, CyberArk, all in rally mode. We'll break down how our traders are playing this big move. And we're all over the After Hours action. Shares of Toll Brothers and Nords from both stocks on the move right now on earnings. We'll dive into those quarters straight ahead. But we start off with a massive rebound in Chinese tech. The K-Web China Internet ETF soaring more than 11% today, posting its best day on record. It is now up more than 14% already this week. Look at the gains today in names like Pindodo, JD.com, even long-lagging Alibaba posting strong gains. But are worries about China's regulatory crackdown really behind us? Or is this just a giant head fake for the sector? Is there an emerging market specialist in the house? Yes, there is in Tim Seymour. So, Tim, what do you say about this big bounce? Well, Mel, there's a few factors, including just wickedly oversold, but also you had some macro PBOC saying they're going to support economic policy with monetary policy. You've had a couple also interesting dynamics, which is that the Hong Kong exchange has opened up a shares futures to Western investors. So the ability actually to access the local markets through the futures market, the MSCI and market regulators love this stuff. And even the MSCI went out there uh, recently and said he actually thinks this talk of China uninvestable is not true. So to the extent that you haven't seen a mass exodus from the A shares market from foreign investors, that's been very good. You have seen a mass exodus from uh, Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, you know, some of the names that we talk about all the time on this show. And so um, JD.com, um, reported fantastic numbers. Again, they, they are not necessarily in the same regulatory spotlight as an Alibaba. They, they really don't you know, have the same type of uh, anti-monopoly and, and even some of the cybersecurity dynamics. They certainly have a omni-channel approach. And when these guys showed 27% growth, when these guys are outlining uh, at least a, a 32, 35% CAGR over the next couple of years, and you look at a 22 times multiple, which makes this a $95 stock, there's still a lot of reason to get excited about some of these names. I, I don't think that the pressure has been removed. I've been talking about why um, I don't think China really uh, necessarily cares about the, the, the global investor as much as they care about some of the social issues. But but we have seen this before. Um, these stocks were overdone. Um, but if you look at Alibaba, there's still such a long way to go for this stock even to get out of this down channel. In fact, it's probably around 210 before you even get above that downward trend. But that that gives you another 20 percent. So a really exciting move. Weaker dollar helps. EM overall helps. Um, but I, I don't think you're out of the woods. I mean, it wasn't too many days ago that Tencent had its earnings call and effectively warned the industry that there could be more regulations coming specifically on how to use uh, user data uh, from advertising and for advertising, Dan. So, I mean, aside from the bounce, would you have said anything is different about the China picture? And does the bounce change anything in your view in terms of your attitude toward Chinese stocks? 
Well, you asked me that last night, and I said no. But the, the you know the price uh, action over the last let's say 24 to 36 hours really does change the sentiment a little bit. It makes you look in hindsight and say things got a little too negative given what we know then. You know, to me, I, I was focused last night on the fact that you know the Chinese government took a seat on the board of ByteDance. They're likely to do that um, with some of these other companies. Maybe the stocks are down so much in such um, a short period of time, but it's also been trending lower, as Guy would say. Um, you know, Alibaba back there on Halloween was trading up there. You know, it's been cut in half since then, even with this really sharp rally. Um, listen, I, I might look to some other places. I might look to uh, Korea, this Coupang. This is a company that went public earlier this year. Not a lot of great things going on right there. 40% short interest. Look at the chart on this thing. CPNG here. It just made a match low at about 30 bucks or so. That thing looks like it's ready to explode, given the sentiment so poorly. That's how I I use these sorts of setups in a way. I don't have a position in this name, but I'm starting to look at it because you might have a similar move. This stock was trading 45 a little more than a month ago. And South Korean stocks don't have targets on their backs, as I last checked, Guy Dami. I mean, Gary Gensler, the chair of the SEC, coming out today saying that Chinese companies should offer more warnings to investors about the regulatory risks involved. I don't know if that impacts whether investors actually buy them or not. But, I mean, the point is that pressure is coming from both sides on these same companies. No question about it, but there also is a window of opportunity. We actually talked about it last night, if you recall, which I know you do. We said how the volume in Alibaba, I think it traded over 83 million shares. Mm-hmm. Talked about how it traded three and a half, four times normal volume. The reversal was extraordinarily powerful off the low. Made a new, I think, year and a half low, closed higher on the day. And we said the trade set up well. Well, setting up well right now. And I agree with Tim. I don't know if it gets to 210, but I absolutely could see it north of 190, 195. And to Tim's point, it will still be in this downtrend from Halloween boo of last year when it topped out around 311 or so. So I think the trading opportunity was there last night. And I think it's there again today. Yeah. How about you, BK? Anything changed in the past 24 hours from when we had this discussion yesterday? No, no, not at all. So I think the difference here is, you're, you know, whether or not you're a, sh- a short-term trader or you're looking at the bigger picture. On the short-term, bear market rallies can be vicious, and you can make a lot of money on that, and that's what I think is what's happening in the stocks in particular. But when I look at China, to me what's going on is they had a housing bubble that burst during COVID, and typically what we've seen in Western capitalist societies, you bail out the companies, Right. Well, China has said, we're not bailing out the companies. We're going to bail out Main Street. So why would I want to buy something that even the Chinese government, they're cracking down on it. They don't want to bail it out. I want to stick with what the Chinese consumer is doing. I still think China is turning the announcement from PBOC that they're going to support credit growth for small and medium businesses. Very, very positive. But I just think these big names, I don't, they're uninvestable for me. So, again, I would play it via copper. I would play it via oil. Those are ways to play the China story and the China growth without mm-hmm. actually having that kind of existential risk that you're going to wake up and the company has been liquidated or is at, you know, a half size in price. The consumer is an interesting angle to this China trade, mm-hmm. Tim, but you have to be careful of what kind of consumer you're investing in because it wasn't long ago either that President Xi came out with strong words about income inequality uh, effectively, you know, sort of saying that the rich people yep. have to give back Common. more to society. 
Yeah, this common prosperity theme, and and it's 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 notable, and it, it's kind of it, look. It's a little surprising that someone like Jack Ma has been you know very silent during all this, when in fact uh, there's an opportunity to actually give something back. And and it, you know I've seen this in other emerging markets, and we'll call them oligarchs by any nationality. Uh, and in China, uh, there there is an opportunity, I think, to to show where there's maybe been some hubris here and a belief that you're above the state. You're never above the state in in most of these countries, frankly, certainly not in China. China. Alibaba has 75 billion or so in cash. I think they will be paying into this common prosperity theme, and I think they'll do it happily. Tencent has already put 8 billion in, and I think they're going to pay the piper. The question is, does that take the pressure off for now? Uh, do we now know whose boss is the ring been kissed, etc.? Um, again, I go back to JD.com though. They've got 532 million active users. They gained 32 million. They had a record in the quarter, and, and we still think that there's a lot of room for them to grow. So at some point, managers say oh my gosh, I didn't think it was so cheap I would ever see this stock here again. That's kind of what happens when you have earnings reinforcement and a, and a company that, again, I don't think is as much in the crosshairs or the bullseye as the big three. Um, that's why JD was up 15% today. All right, let's get more on the action we're seeing in China with David Riedel, president and founder of Riedel Research Group. Um, David, great to have you with us. Thank you. You're a big believer in the long-term China growth story, and yet right now you are cautious. Um, what will... What will take China out of the penalty box, in your view? Well, I'm really cautious about these U.S.-listed Chinese names. You know, Beijing has told us for years that, America, that international investors are not allowed to invest in Internet companies and telecom companies and so on and so forth. So we've created these structures, these VIEs, these, uh, these U.S. listings of Cayman companies uh, that point back to the company in China. And I just think that's a very dangerous place to be. We've been reminded by Beijing that they will crack down on some of these industries for-profit education, now some of the data stuff that Alibaba and so on and so forth are exposed to. The China story is very strong, but U.S.-listed Chinese names is not the way to play it. So you like domestically listed A-shares. Are there um, equivalents of some of these VIE Cayman-listed companies, Cayman companies listed in the United States um, in the A-shares market? Or are you just saying that these A-shares companies are better just because they, they can escape the regulatory headwinds? They can't escape the regulatory headwinds, but they're not caught in this crossfire between Beijing and Washington, D.C. The other side of the coin we haven't really talked about is the risk that's coming out of Washington to some of these Chinese companies on the audit front and potential delistings and so on and so forth. The reason I advocate for the, uh, the, the easily accessible funds that own A-shares is these are mid-market companies that are focused on the domestic business. They're, they're just below the, the area where Beijing would be focusing a lot of their fire. So these are high quality ways to play regional and national growth in China among consumers as well as in businesses. David, it's Tim. Uh, great having you on because you know this market. And, and I brought up earlier, uh, I think it's not nuanced that the Hong Kong exchange opened up a shares futures. They made the announcement on Friday, probably at the low of sentiment. Um, what does this say about China's awareness uh, of, of and their, their want to have their markets internationally investable and that the MSC looks at this stuff and they actually like it? Um, does that change your view? It doesn't change my view. They want it to be on their terms. The problem has been that the listings that have come to New York have gotten out of their control. When Didi uh, sort of gave them a, a, a stiff arm and went ahead with their listing in New York, that was a big red flag for Beijing. They don't like that kind of thing. They like stuff that's in their home turf, on their rules, on their grounds, in their markets. And that's where they're going to allow you to play. How does this all shake out in David, terms no of, uh, uh, sorry about that, uh, in terms of the VIE 
companies? I mean, if they change their structure, David, does that make you more willing to be an investor in a JD or, or a BABA? I mean, I don't even know if that's possible or if the catch is out of the bag, horse out of the barn, pick whatever metaphor you choose. Yeah, you can't, you can't change your structure because it's illegal for foreign investors to invest in many of the fields and industries that these VIEs represent, full stop. So you cannot change it into a direct investment into something. So these things will delist in the U.S. They'll relist into Shanghai, and they'll be available there for people to buy on that side of the fence. Wait, you think that these major, some of the largest uh, tech companies in China will delist in the U.S. and relist in Shanghai? I do. do. Wow. Okay. David, thank you. David Riedel. Thank you. Riedel Research. Um, Tim, how would that look? That seems very drastic. Well, yeah. And will the train be leaving the station? I I mean, I I think if you think about Alibaba, by the way, the minute they got the the local listing, it it was an enormous actually catalyst to the stock. So uh, local liquidity is is significant and significant in excess over where they are here. Uh, I think that would still, though, be uh, devastating to to these shares. I I, I think also U.S. regulators um, have also known the point in which to push and and where they've also backed off. So, um, look, anything can happen. David's got a very sober look at, at what ultimately is the, 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 the bottom guardrail and the bottom line, I should say, for the Chinese government. Um, I think these stocks stay listed. And, and I think for the near term, you are not going to see major Chinese companies sneak through the back door and try to list you know, in, in the U.S. days before the Chinese New Year and big important events in the Communist Party. I mean, these were slaps in the face at home. These were major mistakes. And we're all paying the price. Are you with David, Dan, in terms of the notion that these major Chinese companies would delist in the U.S. eventually? Yeah, I have no idea. But I'll tell you this. If you look at the FXI, that's the iShares uh, large cap, you know, Chinese ETF. And you look at the top three holdings and they are Alibaba, Tencent and Menowan. And you look at their, I don't know, 20 some percent of the holdings. They're all listed in the Hong Kong shares. Right. So I have to assume for some of those uh, ETFs like FXI, that might be a really good thing. And maybe there's an ARB there. We've got uh, earnings alerts here on Toll Brothers. Let's get to Diana Olick, who's got all the details. Hi, Diana. Hi, Melissa. Yeah, Toll stock is basically flat in after hours as the nation's luxury home builder beat on EPS and came in right around revenue estimates. Net signed contracts for Q3 really stood out up 35% year over year to a company high in both units and dollar volume. And backlog value was up 55% compared to Q3 of last year. The number of homes in backlog, 10,661, was up 47%. So quarter and backlog in both dollars and units, also all-time records. CEO Doug Yearly said in the release, the housing market is being driven by many strong fundamentals, including low mortgage rates, favorable millennial-driven demographics, a decade of pent-up demand, low new home supply, and a tight resale market. He said, we expect strong and sustainable demand for our homes in the years to come. Now, we saw in the new home sales release figures this morning that the median price jumped 18%. Now, part of that is because most of the sales activity is on the higher end of the market, which, of course, favors Toll Brothers. The company also just announced a joint venture with Equity Residential to build more rental apartments, so keeping its tolls in both sales and rental markets. Melissa? Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Um, Toll Brothers right now just off fractionally. Uh, Brian Kelly, what do you make of this move? Yeah, it was down a little bit right on the initial print because it looked like it was a bit of a miss. But when you look into the into the uh, underbelly of here, you find out that there is still very, very strong demand in this high end. So they have a conference call tomorrow at 8.30 a.m. So, you know, you've got to wait until then to get all the information out. 
But in general, looking at this, it seems to me that all of the Zoom towns are still very strong. Guy? Those geniuses at the Fed should take a look at the average contact, co contract price, $944,000, which blew away what the street was looking for. And Mike Coco Beware last night talked about the call buying. I think this quarter should set the stock up to take out 65 bucks. This is a pretty extraordinary quarter, and the, and the guidance that they gave was pretty outstanding as well. All right. Coming up, the biggest bull on Wall Street as of today. Wells Fargo's Chris Harvey upping his year-end price target for stocks. Is there really another 8% rally in the cards? Find out if the charts agree. But first, cybersecurity stocks on a tear today. How should you play the group? We're hitting these names next. Fast Money be back right after this. The spirit of performance defines Acura. And now, it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge, and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura's been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com. Wouldn't it be great to have all your investment and retirement accounts in one place? Yahoo Finance, our sponsor today, makes it easy. I use it to put my investment account and 401k accounts into one hub and get expert tips that help me confidently manage my money. For more than 25 years, Yahoo Finance has been the brand behind every great investor. Whether you're a seasoned investor or are looking for that extra guidance, Yahoo Finance gives you all the tools and data you need in one place. They're the number one finance destination, producing a holistic look at the financial news cycle, including breaking news, original editorial perspectives, analyst ratings, independent research, customizable charts, and so much more. Securely link your brokerage accounts for a unified view of your wealth, including 401k and other investments. A comprehensive perspective is what sets apart great investors, and it's how Yahoo Finance ensures you have the insight to look at your wealth in its entirety. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit the brand behind every great investor, yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out cybersecurity stocks surging today. We're seeing strong follow-through to Palo Alto Network's results last night, the stock posting its biggest gain since its IPO. CrowdStrike also rallying as it got added to the NASDAQ 100 index, the move-setting cybersecurity ETF, the CIBR, to a record close. Guy, you've been on this trade. You were positive just last night. And I believe, if I recall, Zscaler was your final trade. Look at you. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's like you pay attention, which is remarkable. Yes, it was. And it will can, I think you stay with it in earnings on September 9th. And in, in terms of Palo Alto, it was a remarkable quarter. You saw a host of analysts, I think, raise their price targets, justifiably so. Now, in terms of PANW, you traded about 10 times normal volume, obviously had a crazy move. So maybe you see a bit of a back and fill. But this uh, move in this space is not over by any means, in my estimation. Dan, I think you're making an interesting point that, that if you're worried about uh you know, a, a period in the markets where investors are going to scrutinize higher valuation stocks. There might be some 
places in this sector, in the software subsector, um, which might be, um, you know, good, good buys at this point. Yeah, I th- you agreed with me, Mel. Uh, last night we were talking about Palo Alto. I mean, we were talking about um, their expected growth in both earnings and sales. And on a relative basis, their PE and their price to sales seem kind of reasonable. At that point, the stock, I think, was up 8 or 9%. To the, the see it close that way, obviously, you had that breakout. And I think some others came to that conclusion. I would add another sleeper here. I, you know, we were talking about Cisco's earnings last week. The stock was down. We kind of poo-pooed it a little bit. That stock reversed a few days ago and is up about 9% in a straight net line. It's making new multi-year highs. And if you back this chart out, you know, 20 some years, gets above 60, you know, there is just no room back to those uh, dot-com highs 20 years ago or so. And they have probably 9, 10% of market share in cybersecurity. So that could be a little sneaky uh, play, especially as it relates to valuation. Yeah, I don't think many people remember that Cisco is in this business, Tim. And yet here we are. I, I think it, it look it, to me, that's what they do. That's it's, this is not a hardware company. It's a software and security company. I, I couldn't agree more. In fact, I think the valuation there is compelling. Uh, and I think they've made this they've made this pivot. And, and I think they actually have uh, as big of a network effect to apply there. I think if you look at CrowdStrike, it, first of all, yeah, year over year, massive move in this stock. But the stock had been consolidating for the last six to nine months. And if you look at their bookings uh, and billings and the geographic dispersion, but the, certainly North America, where you're north of 30 percent, where you have uh, more Fortune 500 companies coming in. At one point, the concentration risks around their client base was something that hurt CrowdStrike, and I think they've done a phenomenal job of broadening that book. So I, like, I, I think the valuations here are, in some cases, kind of tough to stomach, but the growth is extraordinary. The pricing power also for these companies, uh, I'm not even sure there's, there's a price that, that their customers can't pay when it comes to actually following through on these services. So uh, I think you stay in the spot. BK, you jumping in on this party? All the cybersecurity balls? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, CyberArk is the one that I'm long, and, you know, I I think it really doesn't matter. You want to be long all of them at this point in time because Tim hit on a really important point saying that you have to have this. If you're a company, you have to pay the price for this. We haven't had a major hack since the Nord Stream 2 pipeline was allowed to go through. I don't think that's a surprise, and I don't think that the cyber uh, attacks are over either. So if you're a large company, there really isn't a price that you can't pay to do this. So I do think the momentum continues. All right. We are just getting started here on Fast Money. Here's what's coming up next. This rally is just getting started. That's the latest from Wall Street's new top bull. Chris Harvey of Wells Fargo Securities joins us next to lay out why stocks could surge another 8%. Plus, rev your engines. Ford speeding higher as the company doubles down on EVs. The traders are putting the pedal to the metal on this trade next. We've got that and a lot more when Fast Money returns. For more than a decade, Comcast has been committed to bridging the digital divide and connecting millions to affordable high-speed Internet. But the barriers to get connected go well beyond affordability. Through Project Up, Comcast is committing $1 billion to reach millions with digital skills training, resources, and opportunities needed to succeed in a digital world. Project Up, building a future of unlimited possibilities. Learn more at Comcast.com slash Project Up. 
Welcome back to Fast Money. There's a new biggest bull on Wall Street. Wells Fargo Securities, Chris Harvey, upgrading his year-end S&P 500 target to a new street high of 48.25. That implies nearly an 8% gain from current levels. The new call coming on a record day for stocks with the S&P and Nasdaq closing at all-time highs. Joining us for now is uh, Chris Harvey. Chris, great to have you with us. Good to be back, Melissa. Um, what, what has happened to the backdrop to make you this much more bullish that you didn't see before? <laughs> well, Melissa, there's really three things. So in the first half of the year, we knew we were too conservative, but we never had a hook. We, we didn't really understand how strong things were going to be. So we wanted to see 2Q numbers. And when we saw 2Q numbers, 2Q guidance, we knew that numbers could continue to go higher. And then we started to do the research. The thing that got us, and this is probably the most important thing to take away, we went back 30, 31 years. Nine out of nine, excuse me, nine out of nine times when the equity market was up 10% or more in the first eight months of the year, every single time the market continued to go higher. Sometimes as little as 1%, sometimes as much as 13. Funny enough, on average, 8%. And we thought that was very important. That helped us get more bullish besides the numbers and the belief that numbers are going to go higher and the fundamentals are still rather strong. You do think, though, that there's going to be a pullback in the next year? Yeah, so, so we think this is the part. So typically what you see is in the first, uh, first year of the recovery, which is what we're in, you see very strong markets. Interestingly, when it's the first year of a presidential cycle, you also see very strong markets, which is what this is. However, in year two of a recovery, we often see multiple compression. Numbers still go higher, growth is still good, but you see multiple compression. We combine that with the belief that by the second half of next year, we're going to see monetary policy become less accommodative. We'll see tapering may be done by the second half of next year, and we may be staring at interest rate hikes. So you combine that all together, and we can see multiple compression. And so we think there's a melt up toward the end of this year, but there's a little bit of a hangover next year, and we can see a bit of a pullback. You mentioned your research in terms of the, you know, at month eight, if we're up strongly, nine out of, I think it was nine out of nine times uh, we finished the That's year correct. higher. Did, did it did it change from the seventh month? And how much tighter does it get 10 months uh, in or, no. or nine months? And I mean, it just seems interesting <laughs> that that you're like, OK, at eight months, we're going to say this many times. I mean, yeah, I mean, the closer you are to the end of the year, Chris, the, the better the read on the year is going to be. No, no doubt about it, but that doesn't mean that equity markets are going to go higher. And, and what the, the takeaway is, we kind of say it in a number of different ways, the rich continue to go to the rich. What's, what's happening? We have excessive monetary and fiscal policy on the table. We've seen that in other years. We see that in the first year of presidential cycle. It all makes sense. The other thing that we're talking about is we believe numbers are going to go higher. What, and the reason being is that the uncertainty about the economy, it's not so much demand side, it's the supply side. And the supply is beginning to, to work itself out. The kinks are, are beginning to get worked out. And that means, hey, we have price, we have volume, numbers or earnings can go higher. And that, you know, what we've seen this year is price follows earnings. We've seen S&P revisions up about 20%. The market's up about 20%. So if we're right, we see another mid to high single digit EPS revision. And, and that puts us squarely into mid to high single digit returns for the rest of the year. Hey, Chris, it's BK. So I'm curious how this unfolds, because if everybody's thinking that the Fed's going to raise rate and the Fed's going to taper, um, then right. wouldn't the market start to price it in now? Why would this time follow the other? I mean, the Fed has been more transparent than they have in a long time. 
So why would this time follow that pattern? It seems to me it would just be priced in today. So, so BK, it's a great question, and I'll bring you back to, I think it was 2004, 2005. I remember Greenspan saying, saying this, and I was scratching my head at the time. He was saying, as we start to take off, as we start to raise rates, there's still excessive monetary policy on the table. Even when we start to taper, and we haven't started to taper, and we do start to taper, they're still buying bonds, you're going to have more monetary accommodation than you almost ever had in the entire history. It's going to take a while for that to come off. And so it just doesn't turn overnight. The other thing that's happening is QE, in my opinion, and many other people's opinions, has repressed bond, has pushed bond yields down, and has flat, helped flatten the curve. And a lot of people take that as a signal, oh, the economy's slowing down. We don't think the, econ the economy slowing down is temporary. We don't think the bond market signal is the traditional signal you typically get. And so when we think, see things normalize, we think that could be very helpful for the reinflation trade. And your top sectors are banks and capital goods. Chris, great to see you. Thanks for your time. Thank you. Chris Harvey. And you can read more about Chris's big call on CNBC.com slash pro. So Chris sees another 8% upside for stocks before the end of the year. What do the charts say? Let's get straight to the chart master, Carter Worth, to settle the score. Carter, what are you seeing? I'm not sure I can settle the score, but at the end of a few charts, let's talk about the Wall Street convention of price targets. A few slides and charts. First, 1928 to present. That's all the data we have. What do we know? Markets are built to go up. They've gone up 63 years. They've gone down 31. The probability of being up, if you call that statistics, is 67%. More GDP, more Oreo cookies, more cars. Generally, we ascend. Slide two, the median and mean gain. Well, the mean gain in any given year, 7.9%. The median, 11.1. You can see it there on your screen. So a chart of the S&P with a trend line. What do we know? Right now, we're up 20. So we're up double the median gain of 11. We're up 20. Were we to stay on this trend line, final chart, we would actually reach 49.50 and we'd be up 32%. So to go to 48.25, the level we were just hearing about, that would be up 28% for the year. Now, we've had drawdowns along the way. We haven't had a 5% drawdown plus since March. Uh, so can we extrapolate the trend? That's fine. Uh, but let's, let's uh, maybe for two seconds talk about the convention of price targets. Friday is the last day of the year. It's a Friday. What's different about that day and the preceding Wednesday, the 29th of December, or the following Tuesday, January 3rd? There are 23 sell-side strategists and their job is to do a lot of things, but one of them, which is silly, is to try to say where the wheel stops at 4 p.m. on the last trading day of the year. Not one person knows that. And to that extent, it is a silly Wall Street convention. What we do know is markets go up most of the time, and time is better spent, I think, and this is important to say, trying to find winners. <laughs> All right. It's great to have you because you just you just call it like it Thank is. You, you basically said the whole thing is baloney. Um, but going back to the trend line, Carter, you do believe that the trend line will remain intact? I, I think we break the trend line. Um, that's always Down. my bias. Down? I think you want to. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we look, we haven't had a 5% plus drawdown since March. Uh, we're, we're long in the tooth for that. And we're ever closer to that trend line. So a break of the trend line, if we 5% or would take us below the trend line. All right. Carter, great to see you. Thank you. Carter Braxton Thank Worth, you. a Cornerstone Macro.
God, wouldn't it have been great if we'd had Chris and Carter up at the same time and Carter basically said what you guys do is just silly? <laughs> that would be too I'm surprised TV. you didn't produce around that because that's typically something that the producers of television, it's their want to do. But look, I mean, in this world, both Carter and can be, I mean, both people can be right effectively, yes. right? We mm-hmm. could see this thing go up to 4825 without question just given the momentum the market has. And then you can see the pullback that Carter speaks of. I'll say this, in terms of sectors, I still think you want to be into financials. I know Tim's talked about this. Uh, I'll let him talk about individual stocks. One name I will mention, though, I think Citibank is too cheap. I think Citibank should be trading tangible book, which is about 78 bucks. And oh, by the way, you get a little momentum, it will take out the highs we saw back in January of 2018, which I think is a little north of 80. So I think you can stay with the city trade here. I mean, strategists may be silly for setting price targets. Maybe we're sillier for talking about these price targets, (laughs) Tim. um, But where would you go here in terms of our direction? Well, by the way, Carter, ever thoughtful and and rational, like just like the tone of his voice uh, and guy ever diplomatic. And I I think uh, to the extent that the financials have some room to run, especially in a world where like I I think the the low for yields has been put in for the foreseeable. I don't know how long, but I think I look at the dollar uh, and running into some resistance. This is only a couple days, but arguably 93 and three quarters to 94. uh, You put in your four and a half percent move. All of this uh, will be supportive of cyclicality and certainly banks. But also look at that move of the energy sector off the 200 day. So, um, look, I, I, I think a move to 49.50 or, or whatever Chris is outlining cannot include any Federal Reserve. And that's the key here. And I'm not sure that's the Fed we have right now. They've certainly been uh, guiding us in both directions. But I do think you have room for cyclicality and, and those that have underperformed drastically over the last six weeks. All right. Coming up, Ford driving higher as the company doubles down on its EV ambitions. The traders are kicking the tires on this trade ahead. But first, we've got another earnings alert for you on Nordstrom. The stock under pressure in the after hours on results. Got the full details and Fast Money Returns. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on Nordstrom, the retailer moving lower in the after hours on results. Let's get to Bertha Coombs with the details. Hey, Bertha. Hey, Melissa. Nordstrom beat on three big numbers, earnings at 49 cents per share. That was more than 20 cents better than the estimate. $3.66 billion in revenues was 9% above expectations. Trouble is, that was still down 6% from its sales of 2019. Still 35% gross margins, also beat 1.5 percentage points better on lower markdowns. On the call, CEO Eric Nordstrom said that loyalty club members contributed to 70% of Q2 sales and that it was a driving force for the anniversary sale. While CFO Ann Brandman noted that in-store sales are coming back, the anniversary sale revenues up just 1% above 2019, but helped drive sales of higher margin non-event merchandise with designer sales above 2019 levels, shoes and dresses among the strong categories. Expenses, though, also weighing. Brandman citing freight and labor cost pressures, though they are expecting that to continue. They also see sales momentum remaining strong and expect full revenue growth to be above estimates. But they talked a lot about it being potentially lumpy going here on out because the whole issue of supply chain is tough for them. They had to bring stuff in faster to keep things supplied for the anniversary sale, and they expect that to continue uh, throughout the year, Melissa. All right, Bertha, thank you. 
Bertha Coombs. Brian Kelly, how do you uh, parse out some of the details from this call? It's sort of a mixed bag yeah. here. So, yeah, right. It's a, it's a mixed bag, and the company itself is facing a couple different challenges, right? Not only are they facing challenges from the industry being completely disrupted, but they're also facing challenges from the supply chain and labor costs. So freight and labor, those are two words that you're going to hear an awful lot as we go into the last half of the year. And, I, you know, you look at what's going on in some of the ports that were closed in China. You look at the cost of freight. You look at how long that it's taking to get freight from China over to here. It's gone from 47 days up to 70 days. All of those things are going to hurt the margins for a company like Nordstrom and several others. So we just talked about the S&P peak. I wonder if, you know, we think about what is going to be the catalyst for a correction in 2022, it actually might be this margin compression as freight and labor continue to erode the margins. You know, what comes to mind is Mike Wilson, I don't know when, months and months and months ago, saying that the thing that could sort of roil uh, the economic recovery is supply chain issues and shortages. And here we are facing some of these issues now. And Guy, the fact of the matter is, is you do have to start thinking about the holidays because of these supply chain issues in terms of getting your goods um, to make sure that you have them on time. And you're taking me down the holiday path. I'm not going to play your reindeer game, see what I did there. But what I will say is supply chain disruptions take a lot longer to, uh, to clear up than people realize. And you're seeing it in terms of when you go to Home Depot and things aren't on the shelves. So all these retailers are feeling it. Some are dealing with better than others. I will say that you know, just, look at, just looking at the Nordstrom's numbers, I would have thought the stock would have traded higher on the back of this. Anytime you see 100% sales growth, it sort of makes you scratch your head. But I totally understand what BK is saying. You just got to figure out what retailers work best. I still think Dollar Gen has some room to the upside. I think Home Depot got itself off the mat off a really uh, difficult earnings release. And I th- still think there are places to be. Uh, Nordstrom's is obviously in a six-year downtrend that has mm-hmm. not been broken. And then we had the Best Buy story today, Tim. A stellar quarter from Best Buy. No problems there. Yeah, I mean, even you, Karn Cornelius, would have loved these numbers. And, and I think you get a case here where with Best Buy, look at those U.S. comps up 20 percent. Street was at around 17 and a half. Maybe the most important part is that their operating income was up 40 percent year over year. There's also this dynamic where Best Buy is finding a way to change the business model a little bit. They've got this this total tech and this kind of subscription service where they are getting folks into the store more frequently. They are locking them into contracts, which you know effectively bring them, you know, a, a, a recurring revenue stream that they didn't have before and smooth some of this out. Again, profitability that wasn't there. Look at that stock after doing nothing for the last nine months or so, maybe about to break out of this, you know, kind of one, 110 to 123, 125 level. It looked like it started to do that today. I think they have a fantastic holiday season with supply disruptions or not. People are not paying attention to prices right now. And I think those margins are going higher. Coming up, Ford speeding into the green today as the company looks to ramp up production of its EV pickup. More on that ahead. And later, options traders are gearing up for Salesforce earnings tomorrow. We'll tell you how they're playing this one into that print. Fast Money's back in two. Welcome back to Fast Money. Check out shares of Ford revving up today. Sources telling CNBC the company is doubling its production target for the F-150 Lightning truck due to strong demand. Ford now aiming to roll out 80,000 of the full-size electric pickups a year by 2024. 
Um, Dan Nathan, we've talked about the re-rating of Ford and GM for a long time, but this doubling production, that's a lot. Yeah, I mean, listen, I think that the, the automakers, that they know where their targets are by the end of the decade. They know what the government wants here. They know what the demand is like um, for these hot models here. I, I mean, at these early stages here, and I think Ford and GM and Toyota and some of these guys, I think they know how to make cars. You know what I mean? So I don't think they're going to have a hard time um, doing this. And, and I think Ford is a great way to play it. I mean, I think a lot of investors thought that, remember that run up from like nine bucks to about 12 bucks, and then we consolidated, and then we went from about 12 bucks to nearly 17. I think Guy wanted to put put a dollar in earnings on that sucker and it got some to 17 bucks. Well, here we are back at 13. You know, hold that 200-day moving average down there at 12 bucks. I think you play it against that here in Ford and you might get a year-end rally back up to those prior highs. Let's just say, Tim, and Ford's ambitions are broader than the F-150, but let's just say it's the F-150. But that's their that's their ticket and the rest of the stuff, the Maverick, all, all the other EV sort of portfolio is okay, but not not amazing. Is that enough to justify where Ford is trading right now? Best-selling car in North America, most profitable car in North America, Mm -hmm. a company that's never been more efficient in their overall business has cut out a lot of these uh, loss-leading businesses in Latin America. They're close to breaking even in Europe. The thing you love about Ford and GM, and more GM than Ford, frankly, um, is that you sleep at night that these are companies that are well-run. Dan refers to their abilities. They're, they're OEMs, right? They, they're, they're the ones that have been doing this for a long time. Their transition into EV uh, may be late, um, may be you know, somewhat forced, but there's no question where it's going. And, and it gets back to companies, to me, on profitability. So uh, like, I, I think the leadership at Ford is about as tuned in as, as a management team there has been in a long time. And I love the way the company's running. These pullbacks of 25%, almost each to a T, um, on supply disruption dynamics aren't taking away from longer-term trends. Uh, mm-hmm. Fleets that are on the road, people need to commit uh, and get into connected car and, and technology status. None of this is changing. Um, it's only getting better for both these companies. Agree. But, Brian Kelly, should we be worried about cannibalization? I mean, it's not necessarily an incremental buyer who's buying the Ford F-150 Lightning. It could be a replacement for the regular F-150 combustion engine. Yeah, it, it could be, and there is some cannibalization, but we're talking about tremendous demand for a decade or more. And so when a company like Ford makes a decision like this, that's not being taken lightly. So they're seeing tremendous demand. I think we're, it's more of a transition rather than a cannibalization. And, you know, for me, I'm a Ford guy at heart. I'd much rather drive a Ford than push a Chevy, as the old saying goes. <laughs> I had a Chevy. That was my first car. <laughs> um, coming up. A force to be reckoned with. Um, Options traders digging into Salesforce ahead of earnings. We're laying out the trade when Fast Money returns. Miss a moment of Fast? Catch us anytime on the go. Follow the Fast Money Podcast. Welcome back to Fast Money. We are taking a look ahead to Salesforce earnings tomorrow after the bell. Mike Coe joins us now with a setup in the options pits. Mike, what are you seeing? Yeah, so taking a look at Salesforce, we saw that calls outpaced puts by about 2 to 1 on well above average volume. It traded about 1.6 times the average daily call volume, over 51,000 call contracts. Right now, the options market is implying that the stock could move about 5.7% higher or lower by the end of the week. That's actually less than the stock has averaged over the last eight reported quarters. One of the trades that I was looking at that sort of demonstrates what some institutional traders might be doing to position themselves going into earnings 
was a 1,000 lot that printed in the September 3rd weekly 270-280 call spread. They spent $2.15 a contract for that, about $215,000 in premium total, and making the bet that Salesforce could rise about 5 to 8% by September 3rd. Guy, what do you make of CRM right now? Well, as you recall, Dan Nathan called him one of the best-looking charts, and i got to tell you something. I think up to 284-ish, which was the high this time last year, is probably going to happen. Mike points out the implied move. I think it gets there, but I think once it gets there, it fails. So I like what Mike is selling. I like what Dan said, but I think both of them may submit. I might wind up being right on this sucker. Dan? Yeah, well, I mean, listen, it looked like it was about to break out of this range that's been, it's underperformed many of its SaaS peers here. We have this earnings event. That less than 6% implied move. If you want to make a directional bet here, you're actually risking about less than 3%. So, you know, if you think they're going to beat and raise and they're going to talk about the integration of the Slack deal and there's going to be a lot of good things to say, I suspect Benioff will be on Kramer and all that stuff. I mean, a 3% at the money bet um, to bet into this thing, it makes a lot of sense to me if you're bullish on the name. Tim, do you like Salesforce? I do. You know, the, the, the question we've been asking about other software companies, when Salesforce actually relatively cheap to peers, um, is what's the multiple, what's the market cycle? And there's been a time to, to own these stocks with both hands. Um, it's had a decent run. Dan's pointed out the risk reward there. Um, I think you've got a case where on the integration and the platform and, and essentially uh, the enterprise effects of, of the size of this $200 billion business and how they've been able to absorb all of these acquisitions, uh, it's compelling on the margin. And I think largely they're going to continue to be a leader there. Yeah. Um, Brian Kelly, be interesting what, to see what they say about enterprise also in the, in the conference call. Yeah. I mean, listen, this, this goes into the whole thing of there's going to be a hybrid workforce. We know that. That's going to be a sustainable trend. I am not going to bet against Mark Benioff when it comes to this type of sustainable trend. I also want to see if how that Slack integration, what they're saying about that, that could be a catalyst as well. So I, you know, I like this trade. It's got the momentum. Um, so I would stick with it. All right. Mike Co. thank you. For more Options Action, be sure to tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Up next, we've got your final trades. Time for the final trade. Let's go around the horn. Tim Seymour. Sad day in rock and roll. Charlie Watts, who's been a winner for as long as Ford Motor Company. Uh, Ford has been doing it a long time, like the Stones. Charlie Watts, rest in peace. Dan Nathan. Yeah, the S&P is going to 48.25, and Disney is going back to 200 by here. Brian Kelly. Yeah, I'm going to bring a blast from the past here with Rare Earth, MP Materials. Longer-term play, but a good entry point. Formerly Molly Corp, once upon a time. Guy Adami. There was a great story behind that. I know, Mel, you were a huge Rolling Stones fan. You still are. Charlie Watts, one of the great drummers. I put him in the uh, Parthenon with a few others, but that's for another show. Halliburton comes out H-A-L, Melissa Lee. All right. Thank you all for watching Fast Money. We'll see you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, do not go anywhere. Mad Money with Jim Cramer starts right now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. 
Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager.